This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. This WBEZ podcast is supported by the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. Suicide is a topic that hides in the shadows. It's time we talk away the dark, learn how to spot the warning signs for suicide, and how you can have an open, caring, real conversation to help save lives. Visit the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to watch the new short film and learn more at afsp.org slash talkawaythedark. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. I see a candlelight down in the little green valley Where the morning glory vines are twining around the door When we hear country twang like this, our mind typically imagines walking through the saloon doors of a Nashville bar, seeing folks wearing cowboy boots and Stetson hats. But while Nashville may be Music City, this particular band is actually from Chicago. They're called the Sundowners, and we're just one in a long history of fantastic country acts in the Windy City. Chicago has been part of country music's history from the very beginning, whether it was Grand Ole Opry-style variety shows, rowdy country western bars, or the emergence of alt-country. Chicago has had a hand in evolving the genre sound. Now, the history of that influence is documented in a new book called Country and Midwestern, Chicago in the History of Country Music and the Folk Revival. To learn all about it, we're talking to the author, Mark Guarino. We're also joined by Robbie Folks. He's a prolific musician who's been a part of Chicago's country and folk scene for decades and even wrote the foreword for Mark's book. Also with us is Jane Baxter-Miller. She's another fixture in the Chicago country scene and has released solo albums along with being part of the duo Texas Rubies. Mark, Tell us a bit about the inspiration behind the book. Why do you want to share this history? Sure. Well, you know, the, the the simple reason is that it just wasn't out there, and it, most people didn't know any, including me. And I, uh, this my idea for the book goes back a couple decades, actually, um, when I was covering music full time in the '90s, and I was watching this great scene um, really emerge uh, from the previous decade. A lot of DIY musicians were starting record labels, uh, moving to Chicago to play music, Mm -hmm. and uh, there was this great alt-country scene that was happening, uh, including Robbie and Jane here. Um, And and I, I was thinking, well, why was this happening here? And I kind of looked back and saw the threads go back very far, even though you may not have realized it. And Mm -hmm. the book covers almost 100 years. And I found that even though they were all kind of disparate time periods, that they were really that there was this kind of beautiful connection among all these time periods, too, yeah. up to the present day. Jane, you and I were just dancing to the the opening <laughs> track there. Uh, as a musician, how well do you think it's known that Chicago does have a country music scene? I have no idea. Um, I mean, I don't, um, I don't think it's very well known. Yeah. I think we have a really um, lovely community here uh, amongst country music, and, I don't, and I'm glad that Mark wrote the book yeah. so that more people can know. Why do you think that's the case, Robbie, that not enough people knew about it? Well, I think that the commercial center of country music is obviously 450 miles south of here, and that's where the publishing and the labels and all of the, um, you know, the corporate 
super and infrastructure mm-hmm. are. And so um, we've got a ton of great musicians here in all styles of music. But as far as country, I mean, it has such a, such a geographic center to it, the business does. That uh, that's that's a bit of a handicap, I think, for Chicago. Yeah. All right. So let's dive into the book. Uh, I want to start with where country music really begins in Chicago. A lot of that has to do with radio and radio programs like National Barn Dance. So here's a little bit of what that program sounded like. Cider song was never snappier, which reminds me we're due for another good old harvest home ditty. And from the Belle of the Barn Dance and her bestest bow, Lula Belle and Scotty. When the moon goes to shining and the heart goes to pining from a blue rich mountain home, where the hound goes to baying and the pine trees. So tell us about the National Barn Dance and how it came about. It was this improbable uh, story that in the South Loop in 1924 when WLS went on the air and radio was a new technology. A lot of people didn't have radios and were fast, you know, uh, uh, buying them or building them themselves. And it was an experiment. Uh, like today with streaming, they were trying to figure out content to put on the air. And someone, one Saturday night, decided to get some country fiddlers to come and play on a Saturday night, and it was such a huge hit, they built a show around that. There was nothing really like it beforehand. Um, no one. Uh, it was really the first time that they created a blueprint for how to sell this music to the masses and the kind of live entertainment but on the radio. And um, over many years, um, a lot of musicians from – the South, uh, Kentucky, the Appalachian area, came here. Um, they adopted new personas. Um, they adopted even new storylines, biographies, and they became massive stars. Uh, they uh, recorded here uh, for big labels. There were a couple Hollywood movies, but also there were a lot of road shows. They toured all around the country. And so it was this infrastructure that kind of came out of nowhere here to sell music to people who lived in rural America, not necessarily southern America, but it was the country mm-hmm. was more rural then. And that's kind of the idea of the book, that country music's origins were really much more about um, rural people and what they liked and what they were interested in than just um, a, a southern thing. Yeah. Robbie and Jane, I'm curious to hear your reactions to, to that music. I mean, w- what part of it feels maybe familiar or, or foreign <laughs> to you? The harmony feels just totally relevant and right mm-hmm. now, but maybe that's just because I'm an old, old guy. What do you think? <laughs> I love the harmony. I love it all. It actually makes me think of um, Heather McAdams and Chris Legan's Country Calendar Show, which mm-hmm. they do every year. Um, and Fitzgerald's, yeah. Yeah, Fitzgerald's and brings some of that kind of old-timey feel back to it, yeah. you know? But yeah, it feels like, it all feels like home to me because I'm from, I am from Appalachia originally, so... If you're just joining us, we're discussing a new book that chronicles how Chicago has shaped country and folk music through the decades. With us is the author, Mark Guarino, as well as musicians Robbie Falks and Jane Baxter Miller. So help us understand, Mark, what made National Barn Dance and, and WLS uh, so much more successful than than other programs and, and radio stations? It was really its marketing genius and also mm. the talent it had here. Um, there was a man named John Lair who's from Appalachia who came here, had no experience at all, but he loved showbiz. He really wanted to get into showbiz. So he... Um, he became really active in scout, going down to the south and scouting talent to come up. And once they did, he signed them to contracts. He gave them uh, storylines and backstories and sometimes new names. But he, what he did really was kind of create this uh, cast of characters that were had a real broad appeal. 
and um, people really loved them and they loved the songs. And uh, and then what he did after that was that he basically put them in front of people in any way he could, not just the broadcast, but again, kind of road shows through small towns um, all throughout the Midwest mm-hmm. and the South and, uh, and built up this sort of stable of stars that... Um, that was that really there was nothing really like it at the time. Um, and so after a while, um, they got a national sponsor and it became a coast to coast program oh. from the uh, from the South Loop. That's uh, <laughs> which which is which is you wouldn't imagine what we just heard coming out of the South Loop, but it did. <laughs> sure did. And throughout the book, you um, you profile various artists from that time period. One of them is Bradley Kincaid. You call him the first country music star. Right. So let's first listen to his song, uh, Barbara Allen. In Scarlet Town, where I was born, there was a fair maid dwelling, made every use cry well away. Her name was Barbara Allen. It was all in the month of June. So who's Bradley Kincaid? Bradley Kincaid was someone from uh, Appalachia who came up to study. He came up to here to go to college. Um, um, but he got... Uh, along with John Lear, John Lear got him um, on the program because I think he initially went there to audition to just make a side some side money uh, while he was up here, and um, he was really significant because um, at the time. Um, a lot of people didn't have uh, records or record players, and so he went down to the South and found a lot of those songs that were passed by an oral tradition. Mm. And he produced songbooks, and he was the first one to create this sort of um, strange, to us now today, of a phenomenon of creating songbooks where you can now like learn the songs in the home. So he was replicating them. And there was a publishing company in Chicago that produced them, and these sold by the millions. I mean, it created the sort of new venue again for the music yeah. of the Bradley Kincaid songbooks. And uh, so he was a performer who helped kind of spread, who take this music from a very kind of isolated pocket of the country yeah. and really spread it through not just his recordings and what he did on the radio, but through all this publishing he did as well. Robbie, was that an inspiration for you? Yeah, I still love the music and the the stories in the music are, you know, like that song goes back at least 200 years before that recording. And so uh, there's sort of a a DNA there that I think uh, I relate to. And a lot of people from, uh, you know, say the UK and Ireland where those songs come from relate to them. Yeah. I saw you close your eyes there, Jane. It felt like you were almost transporting yourself back to that time. Oh, totally. Totally. Just to listen to that that sound and that those words it, it's a it's a beautiful beautiful song and yeah so pure back. right definitely yeah well another artist profiled in this chapter patsy montana let's hear her playing the song mexicali rose So something interesting in the in the book, Mark, is when you, you talk about how uh, women weren't typically the stars of the show when it comes to barn dance, mm-hmm. right? But somehow Patsy broke that mold. Right. And I think uh, one of the reasons was she had a, a real um, 
just big, bold personality, too. And I think that really stood out. Um, and she became a star that brought a lot of other women to Chicago and encouraged. Uh, and, and after Patsy Montana, there were a lot of actually female groups. Um, and it was really because of her. And she was the first female country music star in terms of record sales mm. as well. And and one of her songs, I Want to Be a Cowboy Sweetheart, has been Boy, it's been covered by song. everybody. Right. And uh, oddly enough, I interviewed Cindy Lauper for this book Did because really? at the time of writing it, she had recorded a country record and she recorded that song and she Cindy knew all Lauper about it. Has yes, a country record. She oddly enough, she has a country record. It's out there, people. I got to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's going to YouTube right now. As we that's right. As we that's speak. right. Are you a, a Patsy Montana fan, Jane? Oh, big fan, absolutely. And like what Mark said, she she really paved the way for a lot of. Um, female singers and songwriters and musicians. Great yodeler. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I'd I'd launch into yodel right now, but it's a little too early. Can you? (laughs) Please. (laughs) I think you'd love that. Uh, I want to fast forward a little bit in time and and pivot more to the folk side of things. So you, you dedicate this whole chapter to the founding of the Old Town School of Folk Music. So why do you see the school having such a big influence on on country and folk music history? Sure. Without the Old Town School, this book wouldn't exist. And the reason is because there was really no other organization like it since and like, uh, like it before and like it since. And the reason um, the, the, it, it became kind of the center in Chicago where people who were kind of like middle class suburbanites, for instance, had never heard this music before, could go there and be exposed to all of it, but do it in a way where it wasn't kind of like um, a conservatory method of learning music where it's one-on-one. It was in a group setting, and it was really about the songs. It wasn't necessarily having technical proficiency or anything like that. Um, It gave uh, a platform for a lot of the folk revival stars uh, uh, home when they were coming through Chicago to perform. And... um, and the Old Town School kind of shows up in every chapter of this book because it went out uh, when Uptown was filled with tens and thousands of uh, Southerners coming up. The Old Town School went there and gave out guitars and really made them feel feel at home and hold community sings. Um, and uh, and also they hired – it was a place where they hired musicians as well to teach and perform. I know Robbie was a teacher there as well. Um, and so it, it – it, uh, it's really um, a re- completely unique organization. Yeah. Well, I mean, in many ways, the approach to folk and, and country music was different from that of barn dance. I mean, what made Old Town's approach distinct? Well, it was um, rooted in uh, the – it came out of the folk revival of the late 50s. And um, so it uh, it it it, it – it really came with this, this group of people who were discovering all these recordings from the barn dance days and, and the, those musicians from that era, the 20s and 30s. And so people had forgotten about that music by the time of the 50s. And so there's sort of a reawakening, sort of a backlash against rock and roll. And so all these people discovered, hey, you know, there's this music that, as Robbie said, goes back hundreds of years that we knew nothing about. And we like it and we want to perform it. Mm. And that was, if you think about it at the time, it was completely... It was it was something completely new, and uh, the old town really kind of drove it drove it home in Chicago and 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 and, yeah. and spread its popularity. Here's a recording we have of Frank Hamilton, one of the central figures you talk about in this section. Takes a worried man to sing a worried song. Takes a worried man. Sing a worried song 
takes a worried man to sing a worried song. I'm worried now. So Mark talks in, in the book uh, about how Frank's style of teaching was like non-traditional. I'm curious what y- your thoughts are on, on this philosophy. It was b- basically centered on teaching songs as opposed to scales and notes and theory. Yeah, I guess when I taught there, I mean, one thing is I don't know a lot about scales and notes and theory. So, it wouldn't <laughs> so be, you would have liked that philosophy. Well, it wouldn't be smart of me to try to do that. I did try to do a little bit of that because it's like a little bit of that is helpful. But uh, I think more what I tried to do, yeah, was uh, uh, send out song sheets and they had chords on top of them. This is when I taught at Old Town. Mm-hmm. And... Um, And also just try to like, um, I mean, inspire is a big word, but um, just try to like model what I thought was musical behavior, which was like getting emotionally into songs, singing loud, looking at people in the face, encouraging them to get into the like the collective mindset of we're we're doing something together. We're creating an emotional event together. And uh, yeah, I think that's way more important than theory and scales. Probably more effective, too. What do you think, Jane? Well, I'm with Robbie. I I am, you know, my guitar skills. I I know that's why I, one reason I play country music because I know three chords. <laughs> I mean, that's about it. So, so the non-traditional yeah. would have worked for you. Oh, too. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> put me put me in. Yeah. To what degree, Mark, was was the folk revival and and the old town school part of a, a larger? political movement in Chicago? Well, it came out of the labor movement, really. A lot of the founders were people who were just helped found the labor movement, especially in Chicago, people like Stud Sterkel and Wynn Strachey. Um, these were people who um, knew Woody Guthrie and would perform you know, folk music at union halls and that kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, there really was a belief that, uh, that uh, there's um, you, you really have to think about at the time that we're, you know, rock and roll had basically spread out everywhere into suburbia and it was kind of a scary thing. And, and there was kind of a thing of like, hey, there's this music that's inherently American and it's 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 uh, and it kind of goes back really, really far. And we kind of forgot all about it. And um, and I think there was such an what I find kind of beautiful about it was the enthusiasm mm-hmm. it was for discovering um, uh, not just folk music, but but dance and um, music from other different parts of the world. I think people were just kind of like, like kind of opening their eyes and seeing what was beyond kind of this like suburban fifties uh, madmen sort of thing we've we we we're, we've seen. Um, and so uh, they were also kind of radicals too. One thing about the book is that they were all under surveillance by the FBI. Yeah. Um, at the same time, and that's one thing I discovered. I didn't. I don't. Even the families of the these people I talked with yeah, didn't I found know that, that part surprising. Yeah, yeah, and and they the FBI really destroyed, for instance, Win Strachey's life um, at the end because um, they harassed him and they made him lose work. And so the Old Town School was really his last hurrah. And I think he. Uh, did a pretty good job with it. Well, before we we take a a quick break, I'm going to play some more music. This is by one of the mainstay artists in the folk scene, Stu Ramsey. Before we take that pause, Mark, any brief words about about Stu? Stu was uh, a really, really young guy who uh, was this guitar prodigy living in Elmhurst. And uh, the Old Town School embraced him, and he started teaching there. And he was was, uh, um, kind of a blues White, a white blues prodigy at the time, and then got a record record. That was it.
Several venues were part of the scene here. Uh, one that played a big role in country and folk music here was Club Lower Links, where I believe you played with your band Texas Rubies, right? That's right. Give us a sense of where this venue was, first of all, and, and, and what it looked like. Oh, well, um, I don't know the exact address. Do you all know Newport? Dun- it was Denver, right near Wrigley right. Field, a couple blocks yeah, away. Thank you. Yeah. So Lakeview. Yeah, yeah, Lakeview, yeah. absolutely. And this yep. was a club that was underneath Lower Links. You know, Lower Links is a is still an arts organization, yeah. a performance venue, and they've moved. But this was underneath, so it was Club Lower Links, <laughs> and you had to go down. Down into the Down basement. into the basement, <laughs> and it was like this dark cabaret vibe. I remember, I, you know, I was soon after I'd first moved here, I, I went down there. I was like, what? I am in the big city now. <laughs> this is very mysterious. I mean, venue. what was it about this venue? Why was it so important to you and, and to other artists, you think? Well, Lee Jones, uh, it was her club, and she is a force of nature, and she just brought in an eclectic mix of performance artists and jazz musicians and country musicians. Kelly and I opened for the Sundowners um, at Club Lower Links. And um, I think it's all because of Lee. She just curated this space and created a vibe there that was so special. And when I read in your bookmark that it was like three years or something, I was like, time is so weird. (laughs) (laughs) Because it feels like it it felt like it was a lifetime. You know, when I think back on it, it was just like it was so um, influential in my life. And And I usually do theater, and and Kelly and I were trying to get a gig at Lower Links, and I called Lee and was like, hey, you know. And so she called back with all these dates that she was just offering us one, but I thought she was offering us all of them Mm -hmm. because I didn't know any better. So I was like, sure, we'll do all of them. And she just started laughing and said, okay. (laughs) And that's really, she really helped us out a lot, gave us a place to play. So, Well, let's listen to some of your music, Jane. This one's called Someone You Used to Love. This is by your band, Texas Rubies. That's, first of all, I gotta say that's Kelly Kessler wrote that song, mm-hmm. and um, so shout out to Kelly. Is she singing it or are you singing? I'm it? singing it. Okay, that, that's that's that's, that's, that's Jane's voice yeah. right there. That's yeah. <laughs> Just had to clear that up. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. Um, I guess I got my start. Um, I, I grew up in Kentucky in Appalachia, but I, I really I didn't start. Uh, I thought it was hillbilly music, and I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, but when I, I went to school in West Virginia, West Virginia University, and I started, then I started listening to bluegrass music and started hanging around all the bluegrass musicians and started singing. And um, that's when I really um, fell in love with it. And I had no idea when I moved to Chicago that I was going to meet Kelly Kessler, who had just graduated from Berea College down in Kentucky and mm-hmm. had fallen in love with country music down there. So, um, but that's how, yeah. Yeah. 
That's a great story. You know, there's a, a, a sizable chapter in the, the back half of your book, Mark, talking about the emergence of alternative country or alt country, as it's typically called. Define alt country for us. What is it in your opinion? Well, I mean, I think today we would call it Americana music, and that's the kind of cool thing about that alt-country music is that at the time, it, there was kind of an alternative, too. It was a time when a lot of, uh, you know, country music had gone into stadiums with people like Garth Brooks and, and uh, uh, Shania Twain, and um, and so there was a real interest in musicians kind of looking um, back at sort of uh, older f- forms of country music, mm-hmm. but also kind of like... Um, infusing it with modern like a modern sensibility so musicians who weren't just doing sort of museum pieces but were kind of doing modern music but but steeped in with uh both the instruments and the themes of what we would consider classic country music yeah well let's listen to an example from you robbie this is she took a lot of pills and died Uh oh (laughs) it's from your album country love songs as could be in a world-famed Hollywood star with the big parts coming and the sweethearts too life was a hell of a ride this is Reese Adam Sasha and Simons we are discussing Chicago's influence on country and folk music which is all documented in the new book Country and Midwestern with us is Mark Guarino and musicians Robbie Falks and Jane Baxter Miller and we are currently listening to a song off Robbie's first album Country Love Songs while the traffic crawled by in the street outside, she was sitting in her kitchen bed. Listen to the scuttle of the rats. So I gotta ask you, Robbie, what does alt country mean to you? Well, Sasha, I thought I was doing country music. <laughs> I honestly didn't know. And then know they was... gave you this label, and you yeah. said, what? Got the label, and uh, to me, I mean, I don't wanna sound too cynical, but to me, the label means it's not. Um, People don't buy it uh, a lot, and you know, it's like not right in the commercial center things. And the players on it, like, aren't those, um, uh, you know, they're Chicago people who are good musicians and everything. But, I mean, you can hear from that. We were just kind of in somebody's basement figuring out, trying to figure out what to do. Sounds like fun. It was fun. Yeah. You're a songwriter, and in, in, you were a songwriter in Nashville for a period of time. You also recorded and you released a record on Bloodshot. What have you observed being part of both the uh, commercial and DIY country scenes? And by Bloodshot, I mean Bloodshot Records, uh, which was another main character in this book. Yeah. Well, I observed, like, no Venn diagram overlap, basically, like (laughs) zero. And, like, my, um, uh, I don't know if you call them bosses or whatever, but my publisher and the people at Bloodshot, they ran that label. Each of them didn't really want me doing the other thing. I mean, they told me as much. as They were like, just focus on this one thing that we're trying to do here. You're either making music in Nashville or you're making music right. here in Chicago. And it's almost like, do you want to be an oceanographer or an architect? Like the two like don't really have much to do with one another, <laughs> you know? And so my attitude back then was that I just want to be a part of the music business somehow. I want to get out of this like day labor that I'm stuck in. And I want to go make music for people. And um, so if the Nashville thing works for me... That's great. And if the other thing works for me, like I'll either be a, a, a songwriter, professional songwriter, or yeah. this DIY punk country guy. So the latter worked out. That's what I did. 
Mark, fill us in on, on the background here on Bloodshot Records. Sure. Um, so it was a label that kind of came out of that DIY punk scene. Um, they were three people who had no, re- relatively no uh, music industry experience and got to it because they wanted to document sort of the scene I was describing that I was seeing. Yeah. Um, and it, it took off really, really fast. I think that, um, I mean, the early days really did. Um, there was It was very influential because a lot of... Um, major labels started kind of subsidiary labels that were better funded and actually stole some of their artists and also stole a lot of what the idea they were doing um, to push uh, a lot of that music in the mainstream. So the audience was there. I think that the greater music industry didn't really recognize it. Mm-hmm. And that's really um, what it was. You know, I, I always like to talk about in 1996, I'd, I'd never heard of Robbie and, and, and he had a record out, but I went to go see a show at Fitzgerald's and Robbie was opening up and he came out and I had never seen anything like uh, his band. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, it was really um, very, it was just wild and, and fast and the musicians were incredible and his energy was really out out of this world. And then the then the headliner went on who had all this press and it was kind of more traditional. And I thought, I want more of that guy because I felt he was way more modern. the wild guy. I, I, well, I thought that he was, well, it was more, I felt like he was much more modern that yeah. um, he was he was a modern artist who wasn't really approaching the music as this uh, this uh, you know uh, this this old thing. It was a new thing, and yeah, and but it was what he thought country music was. Mm-hmm. Jane and Robbie, I know that you both have some events coming up related to this book, so let let's hear about them. Jane, you first. Well, uh, June tenth, we're going to be uh, doing a Texas Rubies reunion. Okay, at the Hideout, and um, Mark's going to talk so. about the book, and yeah. So looking forward to that. June 10th. And uh, Mark and I are doing something over at uh, Park West tonight. Yeah. Yeah, tonight at the Park West, we'll be talking about the book, and then Robbie will be doing a a full set of uh, music from his new record, um, and he'll have a band there as well. Love that. You know, the the country scene, it it continues to, to thrive and um, evolve here in Chicago. There's a, there's a host of musicians participating in things like uh, Cosmic Country Showcase and uh, creating their own country music, if you will. Why do you think that this genre continues such fertile ground in Chicago? Well, you know, I think that it's always been a place for musicians to come, and there's so much. Um, what's great about what's happening now is that, the, you know, I feel like there's been more places to play that mm-hmm. really, um, and so musicians are kind of still doing their own thing uh, without sort of, uh, without without caring about what's going on in the big industry towns and because there's an opportunity to perform here and get an audience here. Yeah, the other thing I think we venues. forget about is that um, there's actually an audience here that goes out to hear, listen to music. Um, and it's a normal thing to go do, like going to see a movie. Um, Absolutely. I guess streaming has maybe hurt, hurt that a little bit, but, uh, but, you know, but I think that that's, um, uh, what's been great is that there's just more, you know, there's, there's, there's shows and, uh, yeah. uh, pottery studios and wine shops and distilleries and, and, and basements and, in Lakeview and basements right? in Lakeview <laughs> alongside all the regular clubs and bars and stuff. So it's been, it's still pretty fertile. Why do you think it's been able to stay alive, Jane? Well, I think Chicago is just a really special place. And I, and I think country music in particular just resonates with so many people's soul. Just, uh, you know, just. It just resonates, I think. Yeah. We got just a little more time here, and I want to talk about one more band called Special Consensus. Mark, tell us a bit about them. 
Well, special consensus um, has been around uh, since about 1975, and uh, in a way they're the menudo of, uh, of uh, bluegrass <laughs> music. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what they are. And uh, there's a fellow named Greg Cahill who is uh, a terrific banjo player, and he's from a south suburb, and he fell in love with the music, and he formed special consensus, and they were really the first bluegrass band outside the south to get recognized as uh, as you know just a a true bluegrass band yeah. and in the early days they would play all these these uh the festival circuit and and people would leave once they heard they were playing they were from <laughs> chicago because they wouldn't hear of it oh, no. um, but so he opened doors he opened a lot of doors you know there's a bluegrass band in every corner now you know every coffee shop is a bluegrass band yeah. at the time not at all and special consensus really was um um, a, a big, uh, 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 just, you know, again, kind of opened the door. And, and, and Robbie was a member. Robbie was part of the group at one time. I mean, what did you learn from, from playing with this band? Well, I'll tell you, I learned work ethos because, uh, uh, because Greg was just like working around the clock on this thing. You know, he booked the band. We worked uh, 200 dates a year. And uh, we all helped drive the van around to these places and, and, and do music. And so for me in my 20s, like uh, like Mark said, I was kind of on the wild side. And I like to like uh, drink whiskey and hoot and holler and jump around. Look at that. But uh, to do it all this as a job and to do it that many days and that steadily, I had to learn to like calm down a little bit and mm-hmm. to get into the rhythm of road life and just to sort of survive out of my 20s to learn stuff like that from the older guys like yeah. Greg. Well, let's go out on a, a song that feels like a, a fitting bookend to our conversation. It's called Chicago Barn Dance from local group Special Consensus. Sister, on the radio, we don't want to miss the show. Coming clear from Chicago, a mighty long ways away. This episode of Reset was produced by Andrew Merriweather, and it was edited by Ethan Schwab and Dan Tucker. If you love hearing great interviews about Chicago's culture and history, have you made sure to hit that subscribe button? We share episodes like this throughout the week, along with all the big stories shaping our region. That'll do it for Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Western wear Lula Bell and Scotty are quite a pair. Monroe Brothers, former Spur, and spin the pretty girls. Red Foley and Brad Kincaid, a banjo picking Lily May. Patsy Montana steals the stage, yodeling for the world. They say the line winds and snakes down while bashing back up things. Have to get your tickets in advance. Chicago Bond Day. Proceed to the USO, bring rubber and scrap iron.
gather around, let's get this old truck loaded down. We'll do our bit to help the best we can. Finally, our way's clear to see the music that we hear. Today's the day we're gonna get our chance. Well, the place is packed in every seat. Happy faces, patting feet. The band drives a hillbilly beat. There's magic in their hands. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.